foremost that you would uh, do a mighty work all around the world of drawing people to Jesus Christ. And it may be somebody walking uh, through a shopping center or something like that or turning on the radio and they hear a song about Jesus and they've never really thought about it before. May this be the time when they think and the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin and draws them to faith in Christ. I pray, Father, for people who are hurting today. And uh, there are so many reasons for hurt in this world. And so many things that we go through, some things expected, some things we kind of walked into like a bull in a china closet, knowing exactly what was going to happen, and uh, then act surprised when it does. And then other things that just kind of tackle us from behind. And uh, whatever the situation, Lord, people are hurting, and people need your help, they need your grace, they need your power, they need you to provide for them, they need you to guide them, to strengthen them, and they need you, above all, just to give them hope. And may they understand today that hope is not in circumstances, hope is not in feelings, hope, in not, hope is not in anything we can do or anything that we don't do. Hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray today that you would lift up our eyes to see Jesus and to focus upon Him. And then, Lord, I want to thank you for all of the people that have a reason during the Christmas season to have happy hearts, to have joy. Things are going well for them. Their family is going to be together. They're going to celebrate. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of all of the things going on around us, I pray they wouldn't feel any guilt over that, but I pray that they truly would rejoice over that and realize it's just a foretaste of glory, a foretaste of heaven. And thank you, Lord, that because Jesus died and because he bore the wrath of God completely and he drained the cup of the wrath of God, we have nothing to fear because Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And even when we sin, the Bible says he is our advocate. He defends us. And thank you that he is also compassionate, sympathetic, and merciful toward his children. And so we praise you and we glorify you for everything that this time of year represents. And we know there's a lot of stuff that gets mixed in with it that's not so great. But we choose to focus upon you and to glorify and to honor your name. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And if you agree, would you say amen? Uh, this morning, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. It seems like during the Christmas season, we ought to at least read the Christmas story. And uh, the title of the message today is, uh, Jesus' birth is not like the Christmas cards that you find. And uh, this is one of those things that I think we get a picture in our mind of what it was like, peaceful and serene and quiet, and it was beautiful. And some of the songs don't help a whole lot. Uh, so it helps us to go back to the Scripture and then to understand what all was happening during this time. And so uh, as we look at Luke chapter 2, and then we'll look at a uh, passage in uh, Matthew as well, uh, when we get to that. But let's go ahead and let's just start reading it and follow along and let these old, familiar, ancient words, let them sink into your heart. Think about these things as we read through them. 
And uh, don't just let the familiarity of them go over your head or past your heart especially. And it says in uh, verse 1, Luke chapter 2, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own, uh, better understood, ancestral city. Okay, the old hometown. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because, of the house, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. That's King David, by the way. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And by the way, uh, if you'll hit the pause button right there, there's nothing in the Bible that says the innkeeper was mean or said, get out of here, there's no room for you. That's just a statement of fact, okay? No room for them in the end. And keep in mind that most of these people in Bethlehem were probably related to Joseph uh, in some way. Okay, look at verse 8 now. Now there were in the same country shepherds uh, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord uh, shone before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I'm bringing you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger, a feeding trough. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men and so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us and they came with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them or treasured them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Well, what a story. What a night. What a situation. But sometimes I think because of movies and cards, and especially songs, we picture all of that maybe in a way that is not quite accurate. 
turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And we'll start reading at verse 1. And this is about another thing that usually in your nativity scenes, you've got the camels and the wise men. But actually we're going to see that didn't happen for uh, maybe a couple of years after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Matthew 2, 1 through 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and notice uh, my translation, perhaps yours does too, has king with a lowercase k. He's, he's, he's a king, but he's not the king, okay? And it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who, ha- who has been born? Now, on my translation, notice here, it's a capital letter. Okay, uppercase K, the king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east, or from the east, and we have come to worship him. Now when Herod, the king, again, lowercase, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. Now, isn't that interesting? He goes right to Messiah, right to Messiah from the wise men, without any prompting or anything like that. In verse 5, So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So when we look at the world that Jesus was born in, we find the name of a Roman Caesar, an emperor that is there. And if you think back to your history, the Romans were not really nice people. They were not kind people. They were very brutal. They were pagan. They were uh, very immoral. All of those kind of things. That's the world Jesus came into. We do find a bright spot in Mary. We find a bright spot in in Joseph. And then we find these shepherds that uh, the angel reveals the birth of the Lord, not to rabbis, not to Pharisees, not to Sadducees, not to the chief priest or anybody like that, but shepherds. What's going on there? And then we find a guy named Herod is just really, really, really freaked out by all of this. I mean, when it says that he and Jerusalem were troubled, the idea there is they were agitated. They were not happy about this. This was not peaceful. This was not calm. And it's going to lead to uh, mass murder, as you probably know. And so when we look at this time in which Jesus was born, it doesn't always look like the quiet pastoral scenes with sheep and all of that. The cattle are lowing, the Baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Give me a break. Animals. Can you imagine? This too shall pass. There we go. Uh, Can you imagine the animals, how it smelled in there? Can you imagine the animals as they would you know, make animal noises and things like that. Can you imagine what it was like? I mean, it's not as though Mary and Joseph said, 
Oh, let's go to Bethlehem and let's find a nice sweet stable where it'll be real quiet and peaceful where we can have our baby. And then we'll put him in a feeding trough, maybe line it with hay or something like that. I mean, it looks good on the Christmas cards and on the movies and when we sing about it, but the reality of the situation could not have been all that great. This is not optimal. This is not plan A. Uh, in Joseph's mind. Now it was the plan of God, so don't feel sorry for them, but uh, this is the way it was. And while they are giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, while they are getting him wrapped up and cleaned up and putting him in a manger and probably feeding him, all of those things that you do with a newborn, Mary is probably exhausted after the trip from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. We don't know that she was on a donkey. It doesn't say that. Perhaps she was. Perhaps she had to walk more than that. If you ladies can imagine being in your ninth month of pregnancy and making that kind of trip by foot. We, uh, just a lot that we don't know and a lot that we think we know and a lot that we kind of speculate about. But we do know this point, uh, this part of it. Jesus was born and he was laid in a manger. And while this is all going on, life is happening in Jerusalem. Life is happening in places like Athens and in Rome and other places like that. There are wars that are going on. There are government decisions being made. There's immorality going on probably all around them. And uh, there is despair and heartache and all kinds of things going on. You can imagine the Israelis were not happy about having to go to the hometown, their old home place, and register so that they could be taxed, maybe registered for military service or any number of things like that. Maybe it's just a matter of we want to know where everybody is, we want to know who they are, and we want to know where they're from, that type of thing, just for control. And so uh, as all of this is happening, we want to look at some of the names of some of the people that you uh, find in these verses so that we can see what is going on. Now, the world where Jesus was born, even in Israel, it was a very dark place. It was a rough time. The Jews had suffered very, very greatly, so it's not quite the way it's pictured on the cards Think about the history that you know from Israel. After King David died, Solomon took over, and Solomon reigned for a while, and he brought idolatry into the land of, Egypt, uh, of Israel, actually. And then when he died, his son, Rehoboam, took over, and Rehoboam wasn't a very smart kid, and he caused, basically, a civil war. And Israel is divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. That's not a happy time. That's not a good time. Families were divided. The whole situation was messed up. And they never really got over that. So there's a divided kingdom. They were filled with idolatry and idol worship. They weren't just praising and worshiping Yahweh. They were bowing to golden calves in the northern kingdom. And even uh, there were people who brought idols into the very temple itself as you read through these things god kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them they would not heed the warning and so you know what happened in 721 bc uh, the northern kingdom is invaded by assyria and taken captive out of the land and then in 586 bc nebuchadnezzar comes into the southern kingdom destroys the temple and takes away the brightest and best like Daniel and others and takes them into Babylon 
And it's a 70-year captivity before they come back. Now, the destruction of the temple was earth-shattering to all of them. No sacrifices. None of those kind of things could take place. And now they're in Babylon. And in Babylon, they would get together in small groups to sing and to pray to read the scripture, those kind of things. That's where the synagogue started. There is no mention of synagogues in the Old Testament at all. They didn't exist. But in Babylon, they would get together and they kept doing that after they came back into the land after 70 years. And they would meet together locally instead of having to go to the temple uh, every week. So 70 years of captivity and they're allowed to return And then they rebuild the temple. And you remember when they rebuilt the temple, just when they laid the foundation, uh, there were older people that looked at the foundation and they wept because this temple was going to be nothing like Solomon's temple. And the younger people rejoiced. And the Bible said that with the weeping and wailing and the rejoicing, you couldn't tell what was what. And so some were happy, some were sad. But this brings in a time where when these angels showed themselves to the shepherds at night. Do you realize that's the first time in 400 years that God has given any kind of word to his people? We call those the 400 silent years. So they're not used to having prophets. It's not like they had prophets and miracles and things like that every day and they just, you know, ignored them. They weren't happening. There was no word from God. There was nothing that they had been... uh, Uh, that they were hearing there's nothing they were receiving and uh, they were being dominated and ruled by various gentile empires now you have to realize the israelis had promises from god a blessing of prosperity of power and greatness all of those kind of things but because of their sin they had been dominated first of all babylon came in with nebuchadnezzar And then uh, they couldn't have known, but a few years after that, then the Persians came and conquered the Babylonians, and that would include uh, Israel, right? And then after that, the Persian Empire was toppled by a guy you may have heard of, Alexander the Great. Anybody heard of him? And so the Greeks were ruling, and then uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom uh, was divided up after he died, and then the Romans came, and they conquered all of that. So Israel had only had a brief period of independence and freedom during all of those years, but most of the time they were dominated by Gentile empires, And uh, uh, like I said earlier, they had always expected that they would be dominating the Gentiles, not the Gentiles dominating them. This is the world into which Jesus was born. And he comes into the world as the light of the world. And while he was there, when he was about to be born, the Bible says a guy named Caesar Augustus called for this registration of all the people. So this uh, man Caesar Augustus was actually known uh, earlier than that as Octavian, Octavian. And uh, this is the guy that the Bible is talking about. Who was Octavian? Well, he was the adopted nephew of Julius Caesar. You've heard of Julius Caesar. And um, when Caesar was assassinated, he uh, had no uh, particular successor designated, but Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, was his heir in his will. 
And so that gave him some right in there. And so for a while, he ruled with several other people. But uh, before long, they didn't get along. One of them was Mark Antony. Have you heard of him? Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah, same guy. Same guy. He was a friend of Octavian and a friend of Herod, by the way. And uh, so they uh, got at odds with one another and they ended up going to war. Well, Octavian defeats them and he becomes the sole ruler of Rome. In fact, he is Rome's first emperor. First emperor. Caesar Augustus is what he changed his name to. And so... uh, He's made enemies now out of the people. I mean, when Caesar, Julius Caesar was assassinated, uh, Octavian and Mark Anthony and another guy were going after Brutus. Brutus is the one who stabbed Julius Caesar. It's where we get our word brutal or brutality from. It all goes back to that. Well, now they're all divided, and now Caesar Augustus or Octavian is the sole ruler of the um, empire. And so uh, now he's the one that is making all of the rules and all of the uh, things that are happening now are certainly under his control. He takes the title of Caesar and from then on everyone else would be called Caesar Tiberius or Caesar Nero or something like that. And that's all as a memorial to Julius Caesar. That was just his name. But... uh, Octavian is the first one to take that Caesar Augustus as we find in Luke chapter 2 verse 1. Now he's the one that thinks he is the big shot. He's the one that thinks he is God. He is the first one of the Caesars to claim some uh, degree of divinity. That would get worse as time went on. In fact, early Christians would give their lives because they would not say that Caesar is Lord. They said that Jesus is Lord, and they died for all of that. But it all started here with Caesar Augustus. That's just a little bit of a thumbnail sketch as to who he was. And uh, so then the next person that is mentioned, of course, is Joseph. Well, what do we know about Joseph? Well, one thing's obvious, his name. He's named after the Old Testament guy back in the book of Genesis. His brothers hated him, you remember, and he was sold into slavery in Egypt. Then he's imprisoned in Egypt. Then he becomes a prime minister of Egypt. Uh, This uh, man that we're reading about here in Luke chapter 2 is named after him. Now, it's interesting because the Joseph in the Old Testament and the Joseph in the book of Luke, they both had dreams where God spoke to them. And then the other thing we know about them is both of them were protectors of Jesus. Now, one of them hundreds of years before, but when the famine came in the land of Israel and all of Joseph's brothers had to come to Egypt to get the food, and you remember how God used Joseph to protect the food supply, What was really happening there, the bloodline of Jesus Christ was being preserved because one of the brothers was named Judah and Jesus was a descendant of Judah and of the tribe of Judah. And in the same way, Joseph, the one who was uh, betrothed to Mary, when the uh, decree came from Herod that all the babies in Bethlehem had to be killed, Joseph the new Joseph, takes the baby Jesus into Egypt and there protects him. So in a way, both of them were protectors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Joseph, by trade, he was a common man, even though he was a descendant, 
right in line with uh, uh, King David. So he should have been sitting on the throne. They should have been the royal family. In fact, I thought about this. If Jesus had chosen to be born a thousand years earlier, he would most likely have been born in a palace in Jerusalem. And so uh, he didn't choose to do that. He's chosen to come now when the monarchy, the Israeli monarchy is over, the line of David is cut off, and now he's born to a poor family, born in a stable and laid in a manger. Because you see, Joseph was the village carpenter. Now, when we think of carpenters, we think of skill saws and we think of hammers and nails and, and wood, a lot of lumber, those kind of things. Well, wood was very scarce in Israel, in Palestine. It's more of a desert area than you might think. There was some, and I'm sure Joseph was skilled in woodworking, but it also may have been that he, uh, uh, as a carpenter, he made things and built houses and things like that, even out of stone, that he was able to carve and sculpt everything the way that it needed to be. Being a carpenter was hard work. It was very physical work. That's how Jesus was raised. Jesus was not a wimp. He was not a pasty, white, skinny, sissified man that came in. He was a powerful man, and he was used to hard work, and he had calluses on his hands, and he was very muscular because the work they did back then was very physical and very uh, hard, very tough, and Joseph was the uh, village carpenter. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, he's called a just man. And the idea there is that he was just before God. He was a believer. This was a man who was saved and loved the Lord, and uh, just someone that was uh, an exemplary man. Evidently, he died before Jesus started his public ministry because there's no mention of him after that. We do know that he was still alive when Jesus was 12 and went to the temple. But uh, after that, there's no more mention of Joseph. We also find Mary being mentioned in here. And you may be uh, surprised to know that in Hebrew, the word Mary is actually Miriam. Have you ever heard of Miriam? Well, those of you who know the story again, going back to Moses... Miriam was Moses' sister, and she was the one who guarded over Moses when he was put into the Nile in the bulrushes, and she watched over him until Pharaoh's daughter took Moses and adopted him. And so this is uh, what Mary's name actually is. She's betrothed to Joseph. Some people say that meant she was engaged. It's much, much more than that. The families would make an arrangement. Dowries would be exchanged. And it was almost like a contractual thing was made between the two of them. But after that was settled and after the fathers agreed on the price and everything that was happening, then the, uh, the potential groom, he would go back to his father's house, sometimes for up to a year. And during that time, he would be preparing a place for his bride. A lot of times he would add on to his father's house or maybe build on their ancestral land or something like that. Then he would go back and he would get his bride and she was to remain faithful to him and waiting for him during that time. And uh, then they would go back and they would have the, the supper, the marriage supper and the feast and all of that. The marriage would be consummated and there would be the hope of even... Um, right after the marriage, that conception would take place because they valued children and they wanted their population to grow and they wanted the family to expand. And so uh, that would all take place 
during that time. So betrothal, the only way you could break a betrothal was through a divorce. And so when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and he knew he wasn't the father, he was making plans to divorce her and to do it privately because he did have some care for her. And then the angel comes and says, Joseph, son of David, uh, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so that's where Joseph was and that's where Mary was on all of this must have been a very tough assignment for Mary to hear from the angel Gabriel you're going to have a child and she was really the first one to question the virgin birth how can these things be since I don't have any kind of sexual relationship with a man how how is this going to take place yet at the same time she was very submissive because she said let it be unto me according to your word well, what that means is she has to endure all of the rumors. She has to endure all the, uh, the pointed fingers. She has to endure all the whispers of older people. She has to endure all of those kind of things because, you know, can you imagine being a teenage girl like Mary and saying, uh, yeah, I'm pregnant, but oh, oh, it's okay. This is from God. Can you even begin to imagine? No wonder she went to see her cousin Elizabeth for a while. And so uh, this was something that uh, hard road a hoe, probably for the rest of her life she had to put up with all of this. And uh, we talk a lot about the virgin birth, but I think I'm more uh, impressed with the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of uh, Mary. And so let it be to me according to your word. Now, some people say that Mary wasn't a sinner, that she was born without sin, and that's why they pray to her and those kind of things. But when she visited her cousin Elizabeth, she uh, gave that, that beautiful magnificent. Remember that? Uh, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and, the, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God. Uh-oh, my Savior. You don't need a Savior unless you're a sinner. So Mary was a sinner like all of us, and Jesus died for her sins as well as for yours and mine. So she was a, a sinner. Now, it's also interesting she's the only person present at the birth and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, when Simeon told her, a sword will go through your soul also, can you imagine what she felt when she saw the way her son was humiliated and when he was beaten, how he looked, he was marred beyond recognition. And um, she could look at that and say, that's my son. And seeing him crucified, it must have been terrible. Now we find some other people that are mentioned here. Uh, what broke the silence, a 400-year silence, even before John the Baptist, the last prophet of that era, came along? Well, shepherds. Well, we think about shepherds and we think about people peacefully watching the sheep and playing their harps and doing things like that. But by the time Jesus is born, being a shepherd was not considered something that was noble. In fact, the rabbis used to agonize over Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. How can that be? 
the Lord being a shepherd because shepherds were very low on the socioeconomic scale. In fact, it was kind of the thing that, uh, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate from school? Oh, I think I'll go to Harvard or Yale or something like that. Oh, I don't know. I really can't do much. Well, why don't you try being a shepherd? That was an entry-level type job that was a low-scale job. In fact, maybe it was even worse than entry-level. It was something that nobody really wanted to do. And the shepherds, uh, well, it was no longer, shepherding was no longer a family business. There were, uh, it wasn't exactly corporate uh, farming that took over like we're doing now. But the high priest owned a lot of these flocks. Perhaps he owned these flocks that were in Bethlehem. Perhaps they were going to be used for Passover. Perhaps they were sacrificial lambs and they were carefully guarded, carefully cared for, and carefully sorted out as the unblemished lambs. Don't know that for sure, but what if they were? And that's why Jesus, when he cleansed the temple, he was so incensed with all of that because if you came traveling from somewhere else around the Roman Empire and you brought your own sheep, the odds were when you had it presented, it was going to be turned down. Something would be wrong with it. But then they could go, ah, but we have these over here that are already certified and you can buy them for a premium, of course. And they were owned by Caiaphas, the high priest. And so when Jesus spoke of shepherds and hirelings, hirelings that don't own the sheep and they run from the sheep, uh, perhaps we find a picture of why they despise shepherds. The shepherds didn't care for the sheep. The shepherds didn't care for the owners. When they were in danger, they ran because they didn't really own the sheep. Shepherding was no longer a family business. It was just unskilled labor and uh, entry-level type things like that. And so watching the flocks... That was something that you did when you couldn't do anything else. Shepherds were so uh, despised, overlooked. They were so, um, I don't know uh, what the word would be there, maybe hated and things, that they could not testify in court in those days. So if you were uh, needing to be defended in a murder trial, for example, and the only witness you had was a shepherd, you were going to be executed. There wasn't any way out of that because shepherds were not trusted to testify in court. In fact, a uh, historian named Jeremiah from back in those days wrote, quote, to buy wool, milk, or a kid. And by the way, for those of you who are younger, that's a baby goat, not a child. A kid from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. So if you were a shepherd in those days, you couldn't get a break. You couldn't get ahead. Nobody was going to believe you about much of anything else. My dad tells a story. He grew up pretty poor, and they were in eastern Colorado. And uh, he was on the playground one time, and he found some crayons. No big deal to any of us, but it was a big deal to him. He took them back into his first grade class, and his teacher said, where did you get those? And he goes, I found them. And she said, tell me the truth. Where did you get those? And he said, are you saying I stole them? Yes. Who did you get them from? And we need to get them back. And he said, well, my brother saw me do it. And so they get his brother out of class and he comes over and they said, where did Marvin get those uh, crayons? And he goes, I don't know. 
And my dad said the only thing he could say to the teacher was, okay, I stole them. And she said, and he said, she believed me when I lied. She didn't believe me when I told the truth. That was what it was like to be a shepherd. To be a shepherd meant that they were going to assume the worst about you and they weren't going to believe anything that you had to say. And yet, isn't it ironic that the first group of people that find out about the birth of the Messiah are shepherds? Nobody's going to believe them. And we read in our text that people were wondered and they, they were amazed by all of this. You know why? Because they didn't believe them. Shepherds? Surely the Lord, surely angels wouldn't appear to those lawlife scum. And yet he did. Does that give you hope? Because the Lord has a heart for people who are sinners like us without any hope outside of Christ. And so uh, then we uh, run into a guy. His name is Herod. He's actually known as uh, Herod the Great. And in 40 B.C., he was well-connected with Caesar Augustus and with some other people. And the uh, Roman Senate declared him to be the king of Judea, 40 B.C., 40 years approximately before Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is born, Herod the Great is kind of coming to the end. He doesn't live too much longer after this. This is a guy who had some problems. He had dementia. He was uh, paranoid. And he was extremely cruel, very cruel. And his paranoia fed the cruelty. In fact, he had several wives. He had one in particular that he really liked. Her name was Marianne. And Marianne bore him some sons. And Herod got the idea that these sons of Marianne, his own sons, wanted to uh, kill him and take over the throne. So he had his own sons murdered. Then after a while, he kind of got the idea, the paranoia, that Marianne, this wife that he really did care for apparently, that she was involved somewhere, so he has her executed as well. In fact, Caesar Augustus said at one point, it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be one of his sons. Okay? So when you hear about this and you think about King Herod, is it any surprise that he was freaked out when the wise men came to town? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And by the way, if you'll think about it, almost nobody is ever born king. They're born a prince. But Jesus is born king. And he was recognized as such. And so when Herod heard that, knowing that he was illegitimate, just an appointment from Rome, he wants to do something about it. Well, you remember when he is deceived by the wise men, they don't tell him where Jesus is. He has all of the babies in Bethlehem killed. And this is a key to the time period. All the male babies, two years of age and younger. Not just the infants, not just those who are living in a stable. Because when the wise men finally get to Bethlehem, they go to a house. And it says they go to the house where not the baby, but the young child. Two different Greek words, by the way. Jesus is probably more like a toddler at that time, and Herod has all of them slaughtered, if you can imagine. In fact, he even killed his uh, predecessor with the help of Mark Antony is brought up again in that he was just a brutal, brutal, brutal man, and he doesn't, didn't hesitate to have people killed. He also was a tremendous administrator. While we were in Israel earlier this year, we saw some things that Herod the Great had done, 
And uh, he is the one who took that second puny temple that we talked about that they rebuilt after they returned from the exile. Man, he refurbished it, expanded it, made it big. National Geographic a few years ago said that Herod's temple was one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. It was quite a show place, and uh, this is what Herod did. So there were the things that he did to try to ingratiate himself to the people, yet at the same time, if you ever crossed him, or if he had any reason to be suspicious about you, he would not hesitate to execute you. And uh, even at the end of his life, true to form, however, he sought to ensure mourning in Jerusalem for his death. As his demise drew near, he had prominent citizens arrested and ordered them to be executed upon his death. Guaranteed mourning. Guaranteed weeping and wailing. Not for him, but for them. He didn't care. He wanted the show. He wanted all of that to go on. However, they double-crossed him, and contrary to his instructions, they were released. Don't you know they breathe a sigh of relief? So why do we talk about all of this? Because just as Jesus' first coming was no Christmas card, I have a sneaking suspicion, neither is your life. Neither is our society. And we dress it up, especially this time of year. Man, isn't it amazing how many people put up lights and all of those things? I can remember when that kind of stuff was uh, rare And when some of these things now that we just drive by and go, yeah, that's pretty. At one time, maybe back in the early 80s, you would look and say, good night. Look at that. Look at what they have done. And we try to decorate a fallen, dirty, nasty world. We try to make our lives better. We try to, uh, nobody puts a, uh, if, the, if you take a picture for your Christmas postcard, you really don't show much reality. You get everybody together, they're dressed a certain way, they're arranged a certain way, they're smiling a certain way, and you put your best foot forward. But the truth of the matter is, even with your best foot forward, you know you're inadequate. You know you fall short of the glory of God. And that's why you need a Savior, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus is a merciful, kind Savior who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, and the real reason we celebrate his birth is because we would have absolutely no hope were it not for Christ. Christ did not come to save people who have the perfect Christmas, the perfect Christmas card, the perfect family, the perfect situation, all of their ducks in a row. He came to save the failures. He came to save the sinners. He came to save the brokenhearted. He came to save those who cannot pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, which you can't anyway. And he came to be the redeemer, to satisfy God's demand for righteousness and to come and to be our life. Life is not a Norman Rockwell painting. It never has been and it never will be. And you can't attain that. The only way you're going to have any kind of peace is to turn to Jesus. Jesus came into a sinful, violent world to be the sacrifice for sinners. And your life does not have to be perfect. Jesus can handle it. And he's the one that can do things like restore the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. You can't do that, but he can. He can bring beauty out of the ashes of your life. So quit trying to rebuild it. 
and bring the ash heap of your life and lay it at the altar before the Lord Jesus Christ and give it to him because he's the one that can take that and make new life out of it, make a new creature out of you. And one day when we get to heaven, we will see everything we tried to do here on earth to dress everything up. That will be the reality. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more suffering, none of that, no more sin, in fact. And that is the bottom line. You've got to stop striving and you've got to start trusting because you need a Savior. John Calvin said, The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. Look at that on the screen and let that sink in. Why would he care? Why would he even do anything like that? Because he is the one who is the redeemer. He buys us back out of the slave market of sin and he sets us free. And he is the one that guides us through our life, through the good times and the bad times. Now there's hope. I've got a thing on the next slide that says, When your heart stops beating, so does your opportunity to repent. Well, there's a downer for you, isn't it? Yet it's true, is it not? Yeah, it's true. As, but here, let's flip it around to make it more encouraging. As long as your heart is beating, there is opportunity to repent. And for those of you who are concerned about lost family members and lost friends, let me ask you a question. Are your family members or friends breathing? Then there's hope. Then there's hope. And that's what we proclaim today through Christ. There is hope. Christ receives sinful men. And I'm so glad he does or he would have rejected me. And so uh, we think about that. There's hope in Christ. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn. He said, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Verse 2. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign and in us forever, now thy glorious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, Rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Do you know that if you were to die today, and if you did stand before the Lord and the old EE question was asked, why should I let you into my heaven? There's only one answer. Because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross of Calvary. By your merit, Wesley said, let us stand before the throne. So today, if you're trusting in your goodness, if you're trusting in your success, if you're trusting in the fact that you are happy and you look good in front of the world and you have more than most people have, that's going to be woefully inadequate when you stand before Christ. But if you also were here today and you're saying, I have nothing, nothing to commend myself before God, good. Because you understand better than probably most how much you need Jesus, how much you need a Savior. And my prayer is, if you've never trusted Him, that during this Christmas season, the Holy Spirit will draw you unto Himself. And if you have trusted Him 
as Savior and Lord, that you will lean upon Him, that you will trust His mercy, His kindness, and His grace, and His power to carry you through the trials of life and trust in Him and in Him only, Him alone as your only hope of salvation. And if you have questions about that, I'll be happy to help you after the service. There are other people around you that will be happy to help you or get you with someone who can. But don't leave here today with questions. Don't leave here today without knowing for sure that you are right with God. That really is the bottom line because that is why Jesus came. Not for the perfect, not for the Christmas card, not for the perfect picture, but for sinners like us. And all God's people said... Heavenly Father, we come to you today to thank you that you didn't say, clean up your lives, get everything in order, and then I'll come, and then you can have the blessing of me. You came in our mess. You came in our darkness. You came in a violent, bloody world. You came in a world where the government wasn't right. You came into a world where people weren't living right, where the religion wasn't right. You came into a world where there was so much corruption, and you came into a world where kings were paranoid and trying their best to hold on to their throne by murdering all of their opponents. And yet you came, the Prince of Peace, into a dark world. The light of the world is Jesus. And Lord, we need that light and we need that peace. We need your salvation. And we pray that you would bring people to trust in you and your sacrifice as the only hope that they have of eternal life. And as the hymn says, may they find their rest, their rest in thee. We try to rest in good circumstances, good feelings, good experiences. We need to rest in Christ and in Christ alone. Now we can't do that in our own strength. Help us to do that. Help us to remember that and help us to be true about that and not hypocritical in any way, shape, or form. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. To God be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.